Deep in the jungles of Colombia, a place so thick with vegetation and rugged with mountains that the government was unable to defeat a guerrilla insurgency for 53 years, law and order is a matter of who wields the strongest weapon. Sitting at the crossroads of South and North America, as well as the Atlantic and the Pacific, Colombia's history has been colored by the cocaine industry, funneling billions of export dollars into the hands of otherwise poor farmers. Yet the majority of this money, because of the illicit nature of the product, stayed outside the official economy and was often controlled by notorious drug kingpins such as Pablo Escobar. Along the sidelines, using it to fund their war against what they saw as a corrupt oligarchy and their paramilitary forces, was the FARC receiving military support from communist countries against the government's CIA-backed weaponry. In 2016, a peace agreement formed a tentative truce, and the country struggled to integrate millions of former fighters who have, for most of their lives, known only war. Well, I'm not a crook. I burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time given. The police have been the most Me, Hello, and welcome to the myth of the uh, 20th century. I'm Hank Oslo, and I'm joined here by my colleagues, uh, Adam Smith. Hey. And Hans Lander. Hello, colleagues. And tonight we're going to be talking about uh, some unpleasantness in uh, Colombia. But before we do that, uh, I understand uh, Nick is absent tonight, but he, he has prepared a statement. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, several um, several people had to cross... Uh, very treacherous terrain to get this to me, but uh, I'm joking, of course. But he just wanted to thank. Uh, over the past several weeks, we've received some very uh, wonderful donations from people. So he had me uh, read this that he prepared for um, someone in particular who gave quite a bit to the Patreon. Um, so Nick has been traveling, but we'll be back next week. Also, huge thank you to Peter for a very generous donation to the program. Uh, he would like uh, to thank you personally, so please send email uh, to nick at nmm20c at tutanota.com at your convenience, end quote. Uh, and I'd also like to thank a anonymous donation from Bitcoin, uh, starting with the Bitcoin address 1H3A. Thank you. Uh, and with that, uh, Hank, please carry on. Yeah, so uh, for this show... Um we're going to be talking about um, sort of the the Colombian conflict or one side in particular of the uh, Colombian conflict. There's a very, very interesting book, uh, The Parastate, an ethnography of Colombia's death squads by one uh, Aldo Civico, um, who is a uh, Italian by extraction, uh, academic, I believe he's now um, a professor at Columbia or something. Uh, who spent uh, about uh, five years um, 
running around uh, various parts of Colombia in the early 2000s talking to uh, talking to essentially ex and current um, paramilitaries um, that had participated in uh, Colombia's kind of ongoing um, internal conflicts. And as a result, um, he acquired um, a lot of uh, interviews, some of which are transcribed, um, some of which are sort of related um, in the book. And he kind of um, talks about the conflict uh, in its various uh, iterations um, on kind of a, uh, uh, a low level, I guess. Uh, it's a very good book. I recommend you should pick it up. Um, be warned that uh, because he is a uh, anthropologist or a sociologist by training, there's a lot of fluff that he puts in the uh, the beginning part about uh, very fraught, like, will I lose myself in, in the subject that I have now undertaken? Is it true that subjectivity is truly grounded in history? And does the intersubjectivity of it, like, ignore all that, skip to the first chapter, start reading where he's talking to these people. Uh, but Columbia has been a mess, um, in one way or another, um, at least since the end of the first world or first, uh, or God damn it, second, uh, world war. Um, the sort of origins of these, uh, these various conflicting factions goes all the way back to 1948. Um, there were a liberal and a conservative, uh, parties, um, that essentially got into a miniature civil war, um, La Violencia, after a, a left-wing uh, populist uh, politician was assassinated, that sort of forms the uh, first iteration of uh, these quote-unquote uh, death squads, which is a really terrible and overly dramatic terms, or I think it's it's more uh, kind of neutral to refer to them as, uh, as paramilitaries, although, of course, the guerrillas are also paramilitaries. So... What are we actually talking about when we say death squad, paramilitary, like the meme, like right-wing death squad? As far as I can tell, um, the origins of this from this book and other readings, basically, if you're a banana plantation owner uh, or, you know, you have a, uh, a oil interest or you, uh, you're somehow, um, you know, a, a cattle baron. You end up uh, in a situation where, uh, you know, you notice maybe one day that the uh, the peasants are getting a little bit uppity. Uh, they're they're demanding an extra cent um, for their uh, for their bananas, and usually, you know, you just kind of deal with that. You know, you got your local guys, and they they straighten out your peasants. But then you start having uh, these actual like root and tootin commies showing up with AKs uh, in the countryside that, uh, you know, they're actually starting to get toeholds and villages. They're starting to uh, do things like close down road traffic. They're starting to uh, extort people. They're starting to do kidnappings. And so, uh, you know, one uh, one response to that might be to go to the local cops, but of course they're useless because you're out in the middle of nowhere in Colombia and the cops are horribly paid and not really incentivized to do anything. So instead, uh, you get together a bunch of your buddies and you all pay a tax. Um, you kind of pool your money and uh, 
you hire uh, kind of an upgrade from your local thugs. And uh, these uh, these guys, you send them out. Um, they uh, try to root out troublemakers every so often. They you know slaughter an entire village uh, full of people, and things kind of escalate from there until your uh, your guys that you just hired realize that you know well they have guns and they know where the coca fields are and you know, like don't really need to follow orders per se, and then things kind of spiral from there. So. That's the sort of uh, macro gloss, I guess, of how this thing kind of spiraled um, out of uh, out of control or into a very um, peculiar kind of dynamic control on the part of the state. But uh, I don't know what what are you guys' uh, kind of impressions of what's going on uh, in Colombia or what has gone on in Colombia? Well, I've um, I've known a few people from Colombia. Uh, in my day and it depends on what part of you know walk of life you're you're in at the moment to meet these different types of people but it's a very stratified society is the impression I got because they have obviously that sort of very historic kind of Spanish upper crust that still has a lot of the power if you look at the president who signed this tentative peace deal with the the FARC um, you know, you could you could see him coming right down the street in Barcelona or someplace like that. And then if you smash cut to the people who are actually fighting this guerrilla campaign in the jungles, they look very much like the people who are walking north to try to get into the United States. They're very dark. They're very sort of native looking. And there's this bifurcation. And so my impression is that it's a it's a typical Latin country that is controlled by the wealthy and there is a massive underclass. And that is probably the seeds of why there is this jungle force that has been fighting for 53 years plus. And that, that's a remarkable thing. And it's probably because they have that jungle that you know, this has lasted so long. But it, it's truly fascinating that a guerrilla movement could last for such a long period and sustain itself. And a lot of people would point to the reason being that there was a cocaine, obviously. And, and th- these are the critical elements I think are driving the country. Uh, but since the peace deal, I, I don't know if things have improved, if people, the normal people feel like this has gotten better. Uh, because uh, the other thing I should point out is that the, the guerrillas were somewhat of a minority, at least according to the polls. Now, those polls were probably done in urban areas, and obviously they're not going to send out... Uh, people who stand on sidewalks in the middle of the jungle to uh to get people's opinions but uh the FARC only had a nine percent approval rating at one point and that gradually went up uh over time but it it never crossed uh, 20 percent as far as i know and so a lot of people viewed them as terrorists um but obviously people were willing to fight for so long that other people were very passionate about it so i don't know if the country is reconciled i mean if if you either of you had an impression as to if that's happened, oh, or if yeah, I mean, they're they're recent. Like, so they had this um, peace deal, quote unquote, in I want to say 2016. There were a lot of different iterations because there was a there was a ceasefire in 2015, and then there was probably a deal after that. So. Yeah, there. So there was a referendum um, that was rejected by like a tiny margin. It was like 50.2 against um, this uh, this peace deal. It was. Then renegotiated and went through um, the uh, the Colombian uh, legislature without a a plebiscite on it, um, and 
it was sort of a, a demobilization, disarmament, and reconciliation process. But I've just read, uh, you know, in the last month or so, um, I did not record his name, unfortunately, in my notes. But uh, supposedly there is some um, FARC commander who is trying to get the band back together. Um, so it's it's an ongoing um, issue, I guess. And the complexities of it completely are beyond my uh, ability to keep track of. This is one of the uh, the rare um, historical events that is sort of in the West, um, not politically fraught enough for Wikipedia to become completely unusable. And it's also not uh, conspicuous enough for the deletionists to just like consolidate everything into nothing. So if you just look at the, and I know Wikipedia is also just a terrible source, but if you use it just as a mark of complexity, the pages for the FARC and for the Colombian peace negotiations are like novellas in and of themselves. And if you actually start looking into some of these, uh, these uh, documents and stories and news reports and people digesting this from people actually involved, it's, it's extremely uh, complicated to keep track of partially also because of the language barrier and because a lot of these guys are pseudonymous it's a nightmare to try to keep track of. You know, this reminds me uh, of two things. It reminds me a lot of the Spanish Civil War, for obvious reasons, but a very disorganized version of it. It's it, The Spanish Civil War um, was clearly demarcated along ideological lines, but both sides had significant military presence and significantly smart generals who could organize uh, their respective militaries, their respective militias. Franco was a little bit better, and that's why he won. Even though the enemy side had much more armor, um, in theory had all the advantages. But this seems like Mora is a, is a prolonged version of the Italian years of lead, where you have a very disorganized, um, sort of unending, minor level of civil war, that just becomes part of everyday life for, in this case, you know, basically 30 years, uh, if not essentially longer up to like the last few years when they've really started the reconciliation process. The Italian years of lead was you know, remarkable in that how much of Italian life just seemed to carry on despite all this sort of immense uh, low-level conflict that was going on, how many people were dying and, you know, all of the crime syndicates sort of were born out of it. And you have the same dynamic in Colombia and that the, uh, a large number of South American and specifically Colombian crime syndicates who are not ideological were born out of this conflict for one reason or another, whether it was providing security, whether it was taking advantage of a lapse in security forces that allowed the drug trade to boom, whether it was weapons trafficking, people trafficking in and out of South America, Colombia kind of became the epicenter for it. And you can see why forces like not only the CIA, but uh, both the Soviet Union and the Chinese took a huge interest in this sort of strange epicenter where you could exploit uh, the prolonged sort of low-level civil conflict and the general dysfunction of this very, you know, relatively populous state and a relatively industrious country that has a significant level of natural resources, 
you know, already invested human capital even in the 1960s, and you could, in theory, extract a great deal of value out of it. So to me, the complexity and sort of the this disorganization is both a sign of, you know, just general South American politics. Uh, this just seems to be the general mode of South American politics. Low-level civil conflict prolonged ad infinitum is definitely a feature of Brazil and was a feature of Chile for many decades. And it could very well be a feature of Chile going forward, given how sort of the, the political scene is unraveling there now. Uh, and, and it's definitely becoming part of Venezuela. So I think that, you know, you can call this sort of the, the I don't know, the fault of the Americans. And there probably is American involvement somewhere in this. But oh, generally, yeah. this this seems to be a, a real trend you can see in South American politics ever since the sort of Bolivarian revolutions and uh, the chain, the drastic changes made to South America in the 19th century. Neither, not, no country will really ever have a, a, an organized civil war the way that the United States did, the way that uh, Spain did, the way that... Um, I think a lot of countries have, especially in Europe or just the general Western Hemisphere. Uh, even even the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War was much more organized in retrospect, and and it didn't last nearly as long because one side just was able to eventually crush the other side. No side is strong enough, and I don't think any side really cares enough too much to crush the other side. And which is right. sort of unique about Colombia. It's sort of a, a lazy civil war, if you want to call it that, which is why it's gone on for 30 plus years. And calling it a civil war, I mean, the the point of a civil war canonically is to seize, const- seize control of the state. And when you're, you know, 300 miles deep in the jungle up on top of a mountain, it really doesn't matter who actually controls the state per se your local power structure which is basically everybody with a gun in your zip code and uh you know el patron of course um whose uh land you work on or whose militia you're in um that's the guy that you need to worry about and that's just about it um you know there's this this was sort of one of the reasons that um, the Colombian conflict um, in its uh, kind of 80s form uh, really spiced up um, because like the local power structure was so uh, kind of uh, monolithic. Um, it really was. I mean, you talked about the, uh, the local elite all looking like Spaniards. There's a very funny um, part in here where uh, the, uh, the author... He's talking to uh, El Doctor, who was, I guess, not quite a uh, leader per se, but you know, had some sort of a implicit coordinating function. It sounded like he hosted a lot of dinner parties and did a lot of negotiations between uh, between various uh, various paramilitary organizations. And his wife is explaining how, like, oh, these young guys with all this money from the cocaine. You know, they just don't have class. Class is passed down by the blood. Like we've been on this this land for you know two hundred years since uh, since we came over from Spain, and uh, these these new guys with their cheap uh, cheap gold jewelry, you know, they don't know how to relate to people. But you know, look at all the people that we employ. There's 160 people that work uh, that work on this estate. It used to be 500 before my husband got extradited, and. 
you know, she's clearly very proud of her um, position on top, like solidly on top of this local uh, power structure. And I mean, that's a pattern throughout human history. But when the opposite side of that is, you know, you're a peasant and you have absolutely no hope of advancement, your wages, your money is whatever the big man gives you. I mean, that leads to a certain sense of resentment. And when you're kind of in one of these revolutionary epochs, like the 60s, you see things like FARC pop up. And they sort of and, and there's no accident their own logic. that they link themselves to the the Cuban Revolution. I mean, there's a lot of Che Guevara symbology used in the FARC, uh, and talk about sort of feeling like that they're uh, they're enslaved. There was a, an interview I saw of one of the FARC leaders, and he went by the name Kunta Kinte from the American slavery documentary, <laughs> which starred LeVar Burton. Yeah, there's there's an element. Uh, everybody calls life. him Toby. <laughs> Yeah, they they almost remind me of uh, like the Chapo Trap House crowd, except that, you know if you gave them extreme levels of poverty and you gave them um, a, a bunch of guns and training from the Soviet Union, like this is what would happen. You'd you'd wind up with this sort of really bizarre but hyper aggressive and violent uh, revolutionary group that never actually really accomplished anything. In, in its totality, didn't accomplish anything, but certainly created an endless stream uh, of problems. That's for the debatable. Government. In the 90s, they controlled, uh, from what I understand, one third of the country's territory. Uh, and, and a lot of that of was. Now. Sorry? They, they failed. They don't control any of it now. They've, I mean, they failed. Colombia yeah. is, is like a, a hyper capitalist state at this point. It's, it, it, any, any legacy of the FARC is i think like a folk tale at this point they've largely just been wiped out or assimilated it was not a bad gamble at the time um they had significant amounts of local success i mean ultimately it sounds like they kind of lacked outside support after the end of the cold war and that combined with you know the u.s getting a lot more aggressive the colombian state actually under a uh, Uribe, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, and I don't care. Um, <laughs> getting significantly stronger and more aggressive and supplanting um, some of these local paramilitaries, actually extraditing a fair number of them. Um, but uh, you know, basically elected with a uh, a platform of going after FARC with no holds barred, and then uh, having a constitutional amendment uh, passed to allow him a second term to uh, to finish the job. Um, you know, they were sort of, it seems like FARC was mostly caught up in the, uh, the tide of history. Um, they didn't have quite as good of timing as for when to try to sue for peace as for instance, the Irish Republican army. But, uh, you know, those guys were just lucky. I mean, one of the, we're talking about the FARC, you know, I think from what I've noticed about the FARC and I'm, I'm not an expert, but. It seemed it seemed to have more ties to that Castilian class in Colombia and in South America than a lot of the other groups did. I mean, there were there were a litany of of groups, militias, whatever you want to call them, operating within Colombia. Yeah, we're using FARC kind of as a, a synecdoche, I guess, for all of the 
the actual FARC, like the real leadership of the, I guess, the official FARC, uh, from my reading and from what I just saw, what I've seen, seemed to be much closer, like what Adam was saying, to that class. Whereas there were whole groups inside of Colombia that were, you know, mixed or were just pure native. Like there was, uh, there was one group, the Indigenous Revolutionary Armed Forces of the Pacific, um, and they went by, uh, the, you know, the Spanish acronym be Farib, and they were, I mean, the, the name, I mean, I guess the devil's in the details, but their whole thing was basically uh, communist, indigenous people's militia, and they didn't really get a lot of, I don't know, recruits, but they had all this active support, and they were in conflict with the FARC, and there was another group, uh, the EPL, the Liberation Army. And they were a specifically Maoist group. And that was like a, a client of the Chinese inside of Colombia during this time frame. And they sparred with the FARC. Like there was a lot of these weird groups um, that were not closely Spanish at all. It seemed to be being supported by Maoist groups outside of uh, Colombia, like, uh, you know, either China or Cuba. And, you know, in recent years, Venezuela in order to just kind of cause problems either for the Soviets or for the Americans. There was a lot of dueling interests. And I think this this period was also kind of the, you're able to see the split as it starts in 1967 between the Soviets and the Chinese. That's around the time, you know, just after the border war, uh, that the Soviets and the Chinese are really starting to come to blows and really uh, regard each other as a massive national security threat and start actually engaging in sort of a proxy war with each other, not just the United States. And it was only, what, five years later that Nick, that uh, Kissinger basically got the Chinese to agree to the, uh, a secret agreement that they would align with the United States against the Soviet Union. Yep. Nixon goes to China subsequently. Yeah. And from that point on, yeah, brilliant geopolitics there. And you can kind of see the, uh, the the unfolding of that and the Soviets sort of losing their ground. I think the FARC and some of the groups inside of uh, inside of Colombia were Soviet friendly or were just Soviet clients. And uh, certainly Cuba, and certainly uh, you know some aspects of the Venezuelan uh, government were also aligned with the Soviets, and so was uh, Allende in Chile before Pinochet came in. So I think that, you know, to a large extent, this was a you know, dueling mixture of, of ideology and ethnic background, which is, again, why it was a total mess and why no one could really, I think, coalesce. Maybe not until the 90s when a lot of this outside communist support dwindled or collapsed uh, Cuba just totally collapsed. The Soviets weren't sending money to anyone anymore. Uh, and the Chinese, I think, were probably giving up and thinking it was silly. So then the Colombian government is able to rally a lot of these middle class people in the cities who I think have grown tired of the FARC because the FARC at that point was heavily engaged in drug trafficking, was heavily engaged in sort of um, almost like weird terrorist activity where they would execute random people or they would attack small bodegas or they'd attack people shopping. And it became, you know, something that people couldn't really look up to anymore. It was like fighting the system. It became just sort of hooligans 
or murderers or just drunks that no one wanted to deal with. Well, who who is producing the the vast majority of the cocaine consumed in America today? I mean, it used to be Colombia. I mean, everybody you know thought Colombia when he watched Scarface. You know, Tony's going down to Central Latin America, South America to meet with this mysterious Castilian guy, and you're assuming he's in Colombia. But uh, after this sort of uh, imposition of you know your Black Hawk helicopters and ramping up of sort of the war on drugs in that region and Clan Colombia Chomsky style yeah and and there, there's also a question in my mind as to sort of who's you know doing what and for what reason because the CIA was involved with a lot of the movement of that of that drug uh, and that uh, drug money in particular and the crack epidemic was one of the results uh, in places like uh, South Central Los Angeles, uh, and we covered that in other shows. But uh, in the 90s, when Clinton was in there after the end of the Cold War, as you guys were mentioning, the Soviets maybe were not as putting as much uh, force into the region, so they felt like they could go in there and, and get more control over that cocaine, and maybe they're still involved. Uh, but ostensibly, there is a sort of security apparatus set up around governing that as opposed to letting these uh, people like Pablo Escobar take over, uh, who is dead now. Uh, but who, who's producing cocaine? I know that Mexico is a major runner of this stuff, but I, I'm not aware that they're producing it. So the coca leaves and, and things like that, is it still in Colombia? Has it moved? Uh, who's who's profiting from it? And where is it? Yeah, it's just straight geography. Like you have to be up in the mountains so it's basically only the kind of extended Andes range that can uh, that can actually uh, support that plant. Uh, you know, I don't think anyone's running vacuumed uh, vacuum uh, lower pressure uh, greenhouses or whatever in in Mexico. Um, my understanding is that it's still uh, the majority comes from Colombia. Like it's no longer the cinematic. Uh, you know, drug barons or whatever. It's a little bit less conspicuous, but it's still, uh, you know, a question of degree, um, I guess. Like how much uh, how much production can you do before things become very conspicuous? How much violence um, is it going to generate that leads to uh, crackdowns, um, things of that nature? Yeah, and, and the, the drug running routes used to go through Miami, of course, and those seem to have been closed off by and large and shifted to other routes, which seem to be Mexico. But as you point out, I mean, it, it is just physics at the end of the day. If you have this sort of climatic requirement to growing a particular plant, there are only a few places where this can happen. And so that leads me to sort of ask, well, if, if all this is sort of uh, on the up and up, and the United States has this wonderful relationship with Colombia, and they're helping them. Uh, well, I think they stopped actually spraying uh, herbicides over the the coca plants. So if they've stopped doing that, why the change? Like, why why are they happy with this? Because the stuff is still coming in. Is the war on drugs over? Are we giving up, or are we just admitting that this is basically all a charade, and certain people are m- making money off of it, and we're not going to put up a fight? I mean, I don't, I don't have like figures on. Uh, drug seizures or estimated uh, kind of uh, composition of your market basket of drugs. But it wouldn't surprise me if, uh, you know, things kind of just diverted um, from cocaine uh, into things like methamphetamine, heroin, and uh, synthetic opioids. 
like cocaine is is like i mean do, do people even uh oh people i know in dc cocaine. supposedly uh you know a third of the population is regularly uh doing that bolivian marching powder but uh i don't think it's as much um a uh a thing for instance in um in inner city areas that have like transitioned on to uh yeah. things like fentanyl yeah yeah that i think that's correct i think that's correct but obviously you're you're I mean, it, it's it's considered a party drug and it's considered sort of a somewhat of a class drug if you're doing the the powder version not the the sort of crack version so i i gotta imagine it hasn't dropped that much but you know you're right there has been some replacement by others and it's just you know what what uh what does society become if we're if we're not even calling it out for what it is i mean obviously people are not dying in the numbers that they're dying from these other types of drugs and so in that regard i I can sort of not be as concerned about it uh, but cocaine is a dangerous uh, substance and it causes people to lose their friggin' mind and do things to get the the hit that they're expecting and ask yeah, anybody who's I'd been trade fentanyl for cocaine in a heartbeat to be honest you mean you prefer it you prefer yeah it? yeah sure of course well, I, I no, would, I, of I course. Would, heroin if is we could have like 80s worst, patterns but... of drug consumption yeah. like complete with uh you know like gangster rap like crack dealing yippee kaye shit like I, I would take that over fentanyl yeah it, it's not it's not saying that it's not bad but it's also not saying it's good so since we're talking about Colombia, it it just does come to mind as to what what is to be done from the united states point of view like what is the united states national interest uh, outside of you know cold war politics which are basically you know ended at this point what what relationship should the united states have with Colombia? is i guess my question well see you got to make sure that you're able to sell them a lot of shit Mostly shit made by uh, Lockheed, uh, you know, General Atomics, uh, things of that nature. So you want to make sure that, first of all, you pick a side. And you should pick a side that can afford to uh, pay for all this lovely uh, hardware that gets subcontracted to United States companies. I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but also not terribly. Um, you know, this is like real... Uh, real like early 2000s pre 9-11 um i guess that's a very specific time frame like noam chomsky uh plan columbia posting uh back when the uh well if you ever seen clear and present danger that was the sort of point of the movie it was about going into that part of the world to interdict drug barons if i'm not mistaken and it wasn't yeah, it wasn't he, late 90s it was sort of mid 90s yeah, like the security interest of the United States in preventing drug trafficking is iffy. I'll say very iffy, um, with a few exceptions. But I mean, at one point, uh, there were a lot of people that were basically pushing uh, a new nom uh, in the jungles of Colombia to uh, you know root out these uh, these coca fields. That didn't happen really. Um, for various reasons, but we were uh, sending advisors there in fairly substantial numbers. We were providing some amount of air support. Um, this was all, I mean, this was 
way back. This was like nineties and uh, like early two thousands. I think like coinciding with uh, some support for the Uribe, um, their Uribe um, projects. But I mean, the we we've talked a lot kind of about the um, the composition of uh, the FARC, um, particularly of their leadership. And also the the leadership of the uh, a lot of these paramilitary is like basically the local oligarchs. But what's interesting about um, uh, Civico's uh, book is that he actually talks to kind of a lot of the low level guys, or at least a half dozen of them, who are just completely non ideological. Like the the modal pattern here is it's basically uh basically a peasant family dad beats the shit out of mom and at some point is no longer in the picture they're in complete poverty the son joins the army he gets out of the army uh and uh you know he's got a cousin uh who uh has who works for a el patron out in the countryside and uh, they're hiring so he goes to a party and talks it over and they're like all right you work for el patron now and that's that's like the entire extent of the the ideological like anti-communist uh, agenda of your baseline uh, paramilitary here. And they actually talk about how uh, it's not uncommon um, in a couple of these guys telling when they capture um, one of these FARC guys. Um, if and they, there's there's some stuff that's obviously lost in translation. I think this might be some sort of a local expression with more of a connotation, but they render it as uh, if he's a, a good person or a good guy. If we tell that he's a good guy, we offer to him that he can switch sides, and they usually take us up on it, which is like obviously that would that doesn't happen in truly ideological um, conflicts. Um, evidently, they're not really worried about um, traitors per se, so much as people that are just incompetent. So, on a basal level, um, you know, from the perspective of your average peasant in the average village, the guy toting, like, respectively, their AK or their M16 uh, from one uh, hilltop to another, it it looks like the ideological dimension or even kind of the broader, like, so why are we actually fighting is completely absent. Yeah. Listening to some of the interviews of a lot of these former fighters, uh, because a lot of them don't, uh, don't have the ability to admit that they're still engaged in any guerrilla activity, even though there is perhaps a need for that because the only reason they got the government to concede to some of their demands is obviously they had a political, and military force to bring them to the table. But uh, in listening to some of the people who were talking about their time being in these kind of organizations, they, they really didn't have a huge ideological uh, set of reasons other than maybe the leaders. But the average foot soldier would often say things like, you know, I was just sort of walking home from school one day and it just occurred to me that I would just join this organization. I mean, it, a lot of them seemed to make it sound like it was just kind of like a romantic or fun thing to do, frankly. And they didn't have kind of this, this burning rationale for why they were engaged in it. And I, I guess if you do grow up in a country and in a particular part of the country that really has very few options and you do have this sort of very 
fascinating uh, development, uh, and that, that's saying the least. Obviously, if you're getting mortar shelled and bombed at night and, and kidnappings, I mean, you're going to have to have a, a motivation to think about it and want to be involved in, in some fashion. But given how underdeveloped some of these parts of the country are, I, I can't imagine they they have a whole lot of uh, internet and, and social media giving them ideas. It's really just a matter of, you know, I knew my uncle and he was in this thing and I respected him. And so I, I joined, I think that's a lot of people's decision-making, frankly, in most of history. Uh, and that yeah. probably explains why a lot of these people did what they did. And the money, um, they, it's not great money by any stretch of the imagination. The, the one, um, guy with a specific figure, he's like, yeah, I make, uh, the equivalent of 200 to $300 a month, um, basically doing, uh, doing security in this town. Um, it's quite possible. Some people make more, some people make less, but, uh, he also relates how, because, uh, they had that amount of money, um, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, they had, uh, I don't think this is an expression. They had, uh, young women uh, lining up to offer to do their laundry. Um, and I say it's not a, not a uh, colloquialism because, and also uh, he mentions how the, the local, uh, the local whores would uh, travel for several hours to try to get to their base camp because they knew they were getting uh you know, two, $300 a month um, that they, uh, you know, there's very limited ways to spend that, I guess, when you're in the middle of the jungle. Well, let's talk about the money. So, at one point, they were able to collect something like $300 million, and they called them taxes from typically the cocaine industry. And that was often in the form of a 10% charge on whatever money Who, was coming day? Uh, the, the FARC. Oh, you're talking about the, the yeah. yeah, right-wing Yeah, I'm people? talking about okay. the Paris. Like, I mean, okay. their, their contention when they're talking about um, capturing people and them switching sides by basically offering them a better deal, I mean... It sounds like uh, the Paras um, pay their guys more than the uh, the mm. FARC does. Yeah, it could be. So, so the source of funding for that was what then? So they describe it as basically all the local um, barons, um, the local oligarchs, would get together and um, they would kind of agree that they're all going to pay a certain amount of uh, money per hectare of land that they owned. Um, and you know a tax essentially on when they sold land basically like they pooled their uh their resources from whatever the local industries were and uh they hired somebody um who knew uh, what they were doing um and uh you know hired uh recruits the sort of um the the notion of okay well how do you like so i'm like a banana baron or whatever and I decide I, I really need a death squad. Um, like, okay, so in the abstract, yeah, I can, like, I have money, I can buy guns, I can give the guns to the peasants. But how do you actually find the guy who runs the organization? How do you find things like NCOs? Um, they do mention a significant level of cooperation with the actual uniformed Colombian army and police forces. Um, so it's possible. It's like literally, you know, let me refer you to my friend, the retired Colonel and, uh, he'll, he'll put together some guys for you. Um, that wouldn't surprise me at all. 
so acting out of sort of self-defense, a lot of these wealthier individuals, landholders and whatnot, were basically trying to form a militia to protect their assets, and it was up against Yeah, I mean, the... self-defense is a very enlightened way of putting it, because it's also... I mean, there's a lot of conflation of... Uh, of self-defense like the 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 putative rationales are given as like well you know the rebels they're holding people up at uh at crossroads they're extorting people so there's this one particular anecdote um this one um, particular mountain that was uh they used the expression it was cleaned um i forget what the uh, the original spanish was but this is one of the first areas where these groups were formed in the early 80s um where there was a significant rebel presence, they um, were shutting down the roads, extorting people. So um, they pooled together. Um, they raised a, um, a, I mean, a militia kind of implies it's uh, indigenous. They they raised some paramilitaries. And they started by, okay, well, now that we've got, now that we're willing to duke it out and we've got a force that we can duke it out with, uh Every time that you see one of these guys coming in um, to uh, try to extort you, you literally shoot the messenger. So, okay, fine. Um, he was dirty anyway. So then the uh, the local rebels um, sort of escalated because, you know, it's easy to try to shave off, like, one local landowner. They've pooled their money. They have these these forces now. But you're still you know, one guy with however many people you happen to have on hand in the middle of nowhere. The response time is infinite. So they would start sending guys on motorbikes uh, to basically uh, drive by and, like, give extortionate demands and then drive off. So they're like, all right, well, if we let this go on, then they're just going to pick us off one by one. So we're just going to shoot everybody on a motorbike. So don't these people have like mailboxes? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the ratio was, but I'm guessing that there were quite a few randos uh, shot in the whole uh, shoot everyone on a motorbike uh, counterinsurgency protocol. Maybe not a lot because it's a dirt poor area, and if you've got a motorbike, it's probably like on loan from uh, El Patron or your. Uh, you're doing something you shouldn't, or you work for the government. Um, but I'm guessing there were some people caught in the crossfire. And, you know, the classic counterinsurgency uh, pattern where you roll into some village that you're quote-unquote pacifying, and you've got a list of people that you got from God only knows where, of people that were too friendly to the guerrillas, and you start shooting them. I mean, the, uh, the one uh, ex-paramilitary... Uh, um, relating the tale of how, uh, you know, after uh, the 90s, uh, things cooled down a little and uh, we no longer started uh, shooting shopkeepers um, that uh, gave money because they were extorted by the uh, the guerrillas. So, you know, things kind of loosened up. But, I mean, I guess the implication being that you kind of had the choice of paying protection and getting shot versus not paying protection and also getting shot. So... I mean, these the note the idealized version of this um, related by um, some of these interviewees that do tend to be um, the more upper crust um, people describing their motivations. 
doesn't really line up with the uh, the experience of the results of that on your average peasant, um, unless you just kind of regard peasants as ultimately disposable. And um, I think, well, technically, I think one of the organizations Hank is indirectly describing is uh, Adovidinas Unidas de Colombia, which is the uh, United Self Defense Forces of Colombia. Yeah, but, that's sort of the umbrella organization, yeah. but all these things are so decentralized. Right. That's, it's a brand. So this is this is actually this is a peculiar aspect, um, and I'll touch on it more. But this is a peculiar aspect of this civil war, as opposed to maybe the the, the Spanish Civil War. You know, the, there were no organizations like this in the Spanish Civil War because Franco and his subordinates did not allow for these uh, private organizations to grow or to develop. It just was not allowed. You joined the military. You joined uh, his forces, no matter what your organization's name was. He did this to the Falange. Uh, he did this to the Carlists. And he certainly did this to uh, the Spanish Foreign Legion, which could probably be the closest uh, representation of this sort of private militia group that was particularly successful in, in defeating the enemy. But they had no illusions about being private or being sort of a a loose organization of people. You know, these were clearly defined roles. They had a clearly defined hierarchy. Everyone knew who was in charge of what. Uh, I think no one in Colombia, or maybe someone did try, but it seems like no one really tried to properly organize this, or they couldn't. And it's an aspect of Colombian culture, or it's an aspect of just sort of general uh, geographical dynamics of Colombia that don't allow for it. But generally, you, know, you see these sort of random umbrella organizations that encompass all kinds of competing interests. Uh, and these guys were mostly formed, I think, to protect, like you were saying, landowners. But it goes a little deeper in that they were sort of intertwined with American interests, particularly the CIA, and particularly uh, uh, Galerias, who was the, this is later on in the 90s. But Galeria was the Colombian president, and he was very close to the Americans. Um, and he was sort of the first Colombian president of the new world order. That is to say, the end of the Cold War. The Soviet Union is dead. Uh, the Chinese have withdrawn from the world mostly. And the United States sort of reigns supreme. And uh, his particular responsibility in the eyes of the CIA was to protect a lot of uh, growing U.S. investment interests and particularly to deploy troops to oil-producing areas or areas where there were uh, petroleum refineries because these were high, high amounts of capital investment that uh, American companies really could not afford to lose at this point. That they had been given certain assurances at the end of all this that they could invest. And as things began to unravel again, um, the CIA kind of contracted with a lot of these private forces as well as worked with the official government forces to build a general, um, I don't know, a general plan, which was rare in all of this mess, to have a general plan. The general plan was protect U.S. capital investment, protect Western capital investment. That's that's your job. It was yeah, they, at granting orders or giving orders to uh, the Colombian military on what to do and where to go in the country. They mentioned in the, uh, the 1982 meeting um, where they actually formed the United Self-Defense uh, Forces. 
like you know some of those old uh 70s conspiracy movies where they have like uh like a circular like cigar filled room and everybody's got a label and it's like I'm the oil company. I'm the army. Uh, I'm the CIA. Like that actually happened. Um, there is a a big meeting um, between uh, some ambassadors from Texaco, the Colombian army, the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, um, a bunch of uh, local barons, um, where they kind of straightened out um, how they were going to allocate some of these uh, taxes and get uh, cooperation from the uh, the Colombian army. And I mean, the cooperation also, you know, it, the U.S. was obviously involved, um, but it was much more also cooperation with the Colombian army as kind of a, uh, a disposable um, and deniable uh, way to do very brutal counterinsurgency tactics. Um, and they talk about... Uh, getting airlifted the uh the paramilitary is getting airlifted on colombian army helicopters uh from one uh, one fire zone to another um and uh getting like you know waved through checkpoints um obviously being able to smuggle in large amounts of arms and the flip side of that is that that control goes both ways and that cooperation with the state goes both ways. So when a lot of these groups started to engage in cocaine trafficking, they already had existing relationships with the security forces that were theoretically in charge of stopping them. So, you know, having accomplished or at least being working on their core counterinsurgency mission, it was very easy for them to, um, leverage those uh, existing relationships and also you know the money uh to be able to do that without a lot of opposition to do the cocaine smuggling without a lot of opposition from the state well you mentioned 1982 and that was the same year that uh, the colombian farc had their own kind of conference they all got together and they officially officially although they've been doing this for some time uh, ratified the use of offensive tactics. What that meant was uh, uh, mostly kidnapping and ransoming and uh, more aggressive guerrilla attacks and more aggressive incursions into territory they didn't typically control and into uh, urban territory or suburban territory that was typically very not friendly to, towards the FARC. Uh, that's where they started to engage in real hardcore violence. That's where they sort of engaged in a lot of um, bank robbery attempts. And this is where their uh, reputation goes to shit. And it's the same thing with sort of the IRA. And uh, they started engaging in things that harmed the average person that might have had some level of sympathy or some level of empathy towards their positions. Because the average person in Venezuela was not having a good life. And they probably understood some of what the FARC was saying as being accurate or true. Um, but when the FARC started engaging in these tactics, uh, it, they lost all credibility. They lost all, and they lost all ability to, um, I think, utilize certain networks, sort of unofficial networks of people that were somewhat friendly to the FARC in urban areas that could gather intelligence for them, that could give them things. That, that all vanished very quickly. They lost a lot of goodwill because people, A, don't want to be associated with 
them once they start engaging in kidnapping, kidnapping kids to ransom uh, against you know wealthy parents, but also when they're blowing up uh, grocery stores or when they're robbing banks and shooting bank tellers, you know, working class people who work in the bank. That's when it, not only is it dangerous to associate with them, but you lose sympathy and you have to become angry. And they think that they could turn on you at any time. And that's why they ended up collapsing. I think that's why uh, that vote failed in Colombia. Because most people alive in Colombia now remember the, the later years of the FARC when they were, um, they, they devolved into hooligans and then they devolved into actual domestic terrorists and, and psychopaths who were ranting and raving about Karl Marx while blowing up your local bodega. It, it was insanity to a lot of normal people. Yeah, I mean, the one of the other part that uh, I found interesting, there seems to be this pattern in uh, both in revolutionary organizations and in this case in uh, counter-revolutionary organizations where sometimes the townspeople uh, actually reflect positively on it as a source of uh, imposition of order. So, like... Um, there's all these stories about the IRA um, kneecapping uh, uh, people who had been selling drugs in the neighborhood or uh, wife beaters or, um, you know, uh, habitual drunkards, um, people of that nature. And in Colombia, uh, part of this uh, cleansing or cleaning process that they describe is basically, you know, your local, uh, your local vagrants, um, your wife beaters, your people um, uh, who are high all the time, uh, either doing a form of exiling them from the local town, which you know where else are they going to go, or just outright murdering them. And some of the locals looking upon this as like a very positive uh, imposition. Uh, of order in like an otherwise kind of very chaotic uh, environment. Yeah, I mean, the, the, and the FARC is almost formed in that retrospect too. The, the, the origins of the FARC is basically a, almost a natural um, power vacuum response to U.S. destabilization. And then, you know, basic, the, the basic story is that uh, between 54 and 64, the U.S. started training Colombians for counterinsurgency because the writing was on the wall. Uh, the, the Soviets and then later the Chinese were creating um, these sort of ideological militia groups and were uh, trafficking weapons to the uh, sort of more official parties so they could have a dual military structure all over the planet, in Somalia, I mean, all over Africa, but in Somalia in particular, in, uh, in Colombia, uh, had already succeeded in Cuba, in Eastern Europe, in Central Europe, even parts of Western Europe, they were trying this tactic. And certainly in the Middle East, they were trying this tactic. They were trying it in Iran. And they were, trying, they were doing it successfully in India. So uh, the United States uh, worried that uh, if this happened in Colombia, it could create uh, a, just a total disaster. The Panama Canal could be at risk. Uh, suddenly, you're dealing with potential, the potentiality of a Soviet Caribbean. So the United States did what they typically do is they start out with a couple hundred advisors, and they, they start out with training a couple hundred guys. 
And naturally that balloons. Typically there's a trend that once you start training people and once you start sending advisors, it grows exponentially every year or so. It just has to. That once you become involved, you have to get more involved. And once you're more involved, you have to get really involved. And if you're not really involved, you've just wasted billions of dollars and you probably lost the game. So the United States uh, just continued to send more guys, continued to train more people. Uh, and then in 64, the Colombian government felt really confident that they could under do this thing called Operation uh, Marquetalia. And they were basically going to go in this rural region of Tolima, and then they were going to capture this communist. There was an there was an official communist party, but that had been somewhat outlawed by the state. And this guy who was in charge of it, uh, Manuel Marulanda, he was he was on the run and just kind of running around the rural regions of the country trying to stir up support for a sort of rural revolution. And he wasn't doing a very good job until the Colombian troops totally botched it, didn't kill him, didn't capture him, didn't even wound him. But it managed to kill and capture and ruin the lives of plenty of other rural people. Well, uh, when they did that, they... A, created a lot of criminal elements, incidentally, um, and they created uh, a situation where a lot of the local institutions fell apart, and there were, no, there were no local support structures. So the FARC is born. The FARC is born as a way to preserve order in the rural regions. They become the police. They become the military. They become the support structure. They become the institutions, and they sort of uh, intertwine themselves with sort of the localist uh, liberation theology of Catholicism that was very popular in these regions of Colombia. And they uh, they have a Marxist-Leninist party line and Marxist-Leninist positions, but they are also a source of order that the military had and had destroyed these local areas so badly and had sort of ruined their psyche so much that they turned to the FARC as, as a source of real order. So the FARC was then stuck in, actually stuck in a position where they couldn't necessarily be a full-on counterinsurgency, I think, the way the Soviets wanted them to be, a saboteur force. Uh, I think that the FARC had their own agenda of remaining peacekeepers and remaining um, the official party leaders of the rural Colombian estates. That was their mission, and their mission was to become an institution. So part of the reason, I think, of why they ultimately failed is they ended up not choosing one or the other. They had tried to do both. And when they tried to do both, they put a lot of their reputation on the line. They tried to become this rural support network. But when they started killing random people and kidnapping them and engaging the, engaging themselves in the drug trade, well, all those rural people that saw them as a support network didn't want anything to do with them anymore. And likewise, because they had tried to be an institution for so long, they had neglected their sort of uh, count, you know, their combat capabilities, their insurgency capabilities, and they weren't focused as much on just causing problems and working with the Soviet Union to overthrow the state or just create chaos. So they ended up not really doing either one very well and totally failed as a result. I think if the FARC had transitioned towards uh, institutionalization in the rural regions by like the 70s, and had not engaged in a lot of the bad things that they engaged in towards the local population, the FARC would probably be still be around today. In fact, it might actually be like Venezuela, in that there was a slow buildup in the rural regions, which eventually took over the cities, of this sort of half-white or non-white lower class that was deeply dependent on this Marxist-Leninist source of order 
to keep the country going. Yeah, I think that's an interesting contrast between because you see that on the uh, the paramilitary side as well that you have uh, you have this tension between okay, if, like it, sometimes it's easier to destroy a local area than it is. I mean, most of the time it's easier to destroy a area than to uh, sort of control it or extract from it, and because a lot of the uh, wealth of the sponsors of that, like they're not going to act in opposition to the wealth of their sponsors and their sponsors have their wealth tied up in the, the kind of the capital of the region, the banana plantations, you know, the coca fields, whatever the actual villages. I mean, they have economic activity there, but it's not really legible. It's, it's legible and, maybe maybe not taxed by the state but the state is so weak out there probably less more than uh, more so so when you're doing counter insurgency in there that leads to a level of brutality where you don't actually care if you break this thing that you're going to need to uh, pick up and use later where I think this was one of the uh stated rationales for why the Colombian army up to um, the point where they were uh, was not particularly good at counterinsurgency because you it's it's difficult for the pittance that they were paid and the incentives that they had and the incentives that the Colombian government had like it's really difficult in what actually was um, a democracy is a democracy to make a plank of, well, you know, we all hate uh, these gorillas. We have to crush these gorillas. But uh, by the way, like, you know, whatever town is wiped off the map. Yeah. Vote for me next election after you uh, find your relatives remains. Uh, it's, it's difficult obviously to conduct a war uh, when you, you have these divisions and you have a, again, it's, it's just, the nature of the jungle makes things so very complicated. It's almost like you're, if if you are the government, you're sort of sitting in almost like a an, an outpost from the days of European colonization, and you're surrounded by an almost entirely different culture and, and people. And you see this actually in Mexico and, and the really deep parts of, the sort of jungles of Central America where in the, in the south of Mexico, there there are just regions that the government just doesn't even bother with. Uh, and it, it, had, it got so difficult for the Colombian government to prosecute this. Uh, it's not really a war. It's more of sort of a, a police operation in some effects. Uh, it, it got so difficult that they ended up relying upon a lot of uh, CIA uh, satellite imagery because they they could use probably the sensors on the satellites to peer through the canopies of the trees, but otherwise it's pretty much impenetrable. And it's just, it's an open question as to what you're supposed to do uh, to these people. And they ended up basically just dropping bombs from above going into the jungle. uh, They probably didn't want a a repeat of what they saw the Americans getting themselves into in Vietnam. So it's kind of like you're, you're looking at a, 
a war of not necessarily casualties or attrition in that sense, but more of an economic war because what the the FARC was ending up having to do was extort people for the money they needed to buy weapons and, and food and supplies. And they, uh, and this gets, gets to another point that I've, I've wondered about in terms of these insurgency groups um, that they did not have any native uh, resources that they controlled, let alone knew how to even run. And when this peace deal was signed and the people were trying to integrate into kind of middle-class life of Bogota or wherever they ended up in Colombia, they were having a hard time because they had been spending their entire lives learning how to fight and prosecute a guerrilla war and they had no other demonstrable skills. They had no concept of how to operate, let alone run an economy. And so if you're going to hand over power to these people, let's say like they, they did in, in Cuba, what are they going to do with the country? And is it going to be an improvement? And in this case, uh, these people were basically extorting the, the farms for the resources that they wanted to use to buy weapons to continue to expand their power base. And from what I can tell, they were not returning much to the people that they were extorting from. Uh, they were probably doing harm to them. And all they were doing was basically giving the resources to the, the soldiers who were not really productive assets. They're basically they're instruments of, of implementing power, but they do not produce wealth whatsoever. And th- this, this is a fundamental problem. Uh, if you don't have a movement that's able to actually rule once you actually gain power and, and run a real society as opposed to just fighting an existing one, uh, you're you're fundamentally flawed from the very get go, and people may have you know seen through that, and that could have been a factor why they didn't support them. Yeah, and it, you had a similar. I mean, it, to compare it to the Spanish Civil War again, it also never got as bad as the Spanish Civil War did. I mean, one of the things that really turned off the general population from the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War was what the Republican side was engaging in or enabling. And that was a really brutal, sadistic torturing of the, the clergy, uh, really uh, bizarre sexualization of uh, men, women, and children, um, very strange cultural phenomena, in, particularly in Catalonia, uh, that was sort of becoming like almost Republican national cultural reinforcement in rural regions. It, it just pissed people off. It was, and it was straight, it was bizarre. And, you know, we can go, we don't have to go into why it was happening or why it was really uh, indulged in, but the FARC and and certainly a lot of the other revolutionary groups never went that far and, and never, I don't think ever attempted or attempted to go that far. Um, Maybe because the Soviets and the Chinese and, and their advisors had seen what had happened to the left wing in Spain. The left wing was totally cannibalized in Spain because they were allowed to indulge in their wildest fantasies because they had seen their takeover of the country as a fait accompli. And it ended up enraging in, in sort of the, the general population of Spain over time until the end when the Republicans just couldn't put anyone on the battlefield. Because no one was willing to lay their lives down for them anymore. Because this was the government that had indulged the uh, cannibalization, literal cannibalization of nuns, live nuns, as sort of sanctioned policy. Nothing like that really occurred in Colombia. 
And again, maybe it's the Soviets told them not to go that far, or maybe they just never even occurred to them to go that far. Um, if anything, a lot of these revolutionary groups, these supposed left-wing revolutionary groups, were uh, hardline traditionalists or hardline social conservatives in a lot of ways. And if anything, we're sort of rebelling against this general uh, malaise of liberalism that had been seen in sort of the cities and the middle class of Colombia. Yeah, that was something you saw with a lot of uh, kind of second wave, I guess you could say, um, uh, left-wing movements. Like the Soviet Union, after purging the initial um, Bolsheviks, was incredibly socially conservative um, on most uh, most metrics. They did love abortions. Um, and I think you, you saw similar things in... Um, uh, some of the, uh, I mean, there's bizarre trends in um, kind of, you know, sexual mores in modern uh, American left wings uh, as well, where it's in some respects extremely socially conservative and frankly bizarre ways with this uh, this tacit or, uh, you know, this pretense of uh, liberation where, um, this is, you know, the standard E. Michael Jones, uh, uh, libido, uh, Domini, uh, line, but it's interesting the extent to which, like the more anarchic elements of, uh, left-wing spirals end up getting purged and auto cannibalizing almost immediately. And the ones with staying power tend to be the ones that have more, um, sort of disciplined, uh, internal, uh, dynamics. I one of the things that I noticed in my sort of general reading of the later years and late '90s, early 2000s, um, is that most of the population of Colombia seems to have moved on from much of the civil conflict in a lot of ways, uh, Bogota and even Medellin which was once the, you know, the drug kingpin capital of South America, became shopping mall cities and, and bustling middle-class cities. And Colombia was at the top of all these you know, emerging market trends. And Colombia, you know, by 2005, was seen as, a, as like a, a safe investment. You could, you could reliably invest in Colombia, in any region of Colombia, and get your money back. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think back to... Uh you know, my closet. And if you ever look at the, the labels on your shirts or whatnot, and it'll tell you what country the, the item of apparel was made in. I'm trying to think if Colombia had made some of those, but you know, in the nineties, uh, when sort of Colombia was getting a grips on his cocaine trade, it was the era of globalization, which was the euphemism for basically outsourcing of manufacturing from the developed world to the developing world. And I would, uh, I would speculate that Columbia probably was able to capture some of that business opportunity and therefore develop some of that middle class that you're describing because of things like that. And, and yeah, I mean, the there was a general stabilization effect in South America at the right at the end of the Cold War. Things mellowed out. You know, the Vargas regime, uh, which was right wing, was gone in Brazil. Uh, but the regime that or the, the government that replaced it was just a center left government. 
And it was already being very Americanized. It was, it was very similar to you know Bill Clinton's America. Um, Argentina was a little bit of a different story. Um, but Argentina also sort of calmed down. And Chile calmed down, even with the end of Pinochet and the end of his guys. The, the whole continent mellowed out. I think that uh, because the Soviets had stopped their flow of money and vice versa, the CIA and the Americans had stopped their flow of money because they no longer saw it as a pressing issue to, uh, to entertain, it, things mellowed out. Now, which gives you a general insight into that a lot of these conflicts and a lot of this trouble was basically the result of uh, escalating proxy wars that I think both the Americans and the Soviets totally lost track of. Yeah, there's, there's a common misconception uh, in a lot of ways, I believe, that uh, the, the CIA is this criminal mastermind element within South America and that they've engineered all these all, the, all these events brilliantly and they control everything. You know, but if you read any, any of the declassified documents, the CIA seems to be totally inept at points or just trying to deal with the general dysfunction of Colombia or trying to deal with the general dysfunction well, of South the, the America. reason they, they play a big role is arguably because they're from the United States and they have access right. to large amounts of resources in terms of right. human capital, military uh, support, uh, and as well as the ability to get a lot of money. And some of that is illegally. And as you were alluding to before, some of that was coming from the drug trade, which they were funneling to the Contras and other endeavors that they had and some of it right. lining, you know, individuals pockets in the CIA. But, uh, they have an outsized influence wherever they go. Now, whether that is a an elegant one is highly debatable and probably, uh, well, perhaps not very debatable. It, it typically is pretty sloppy in a lot of ways, but they do have a big role because they just have so many resources. They have a big role, but I think that <laughs> the dysfunction of South America, there is a general cultural dysfunction from what I've noticed, uh, made even the CIA inept. And made them made it difficult for them to manage the situation. Every you know their their movements appear to be very much um, reaction based or response based. They're not really proactive down there. I think the most proactive thing they did was get rid of Allende. But ever since in Chile, but ever since then, and especially in Colombia, it seems to be one just sort of misstep and then correction of a misstep after another. Or certain parties of the CIA got greedy and saw certain elements for arbitrage. Um, but to a large extent, I, th I think that the majority of the activity down there was certainly well-financed and well-fueled, but it was a mess. And it was a lot of competing interests as to what should exactly be done with this growing sort of uh, chaos in Colombia, all these left-wing militias, and then later on private right-wing militias shooting it out every day. How do we capitalize on that? Well, I think to a larger extent, the CIA had no idea how to capitalize on it. Had you know, other than the drug trade, had no idea what to do, and tried a number of measures, tried a number of enforcement measures with the Colombian government that did nothing. It just made the problem worse. You know, the CIA didn't really didn't solve the problem in Colombia. Um, general liberal malaise around the planet and the death of the Soviet Union is what sort of solved a lot of the violence in Colombia. So the one thing I was wondering was, after this peace agreement was signed, what exactly did the two sides agree to? I mean, what concessions were made, if any? What did the FARC get? What did the government get? 
and uh, what what has actually in, ensued? I mean, has has the agreement been upheld? Well, before the uh, before there was the agreement with the FARC, there was actually an agreement with a lot of the uh, paramilitaries that was sort of, you know, they. The, these things are complex, I'm sure, but it seems like there was a kind of symmetry in how, um, not a symmetry at the same time, but there's a similarity of approaches eventually. Um, and DDR is the uh, the term that gets thrown around in the Colombian context. I'm fairly sure I've heard that in other um, kind of uh, conflict studies, um, United Nations type stuff. Uh, disarmament, demobilization, and uh, reintegration, or uh, 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 other some other are reconciliation, uh, sometimes depending on its rendering, um, where essentially, in the case of the paras, um, you had a, a combination of uh, group uh, demobilizations where it was like, okay, we're going to take some particular um uh, faction, some particular uh, militia or organization, and you still have a command structure. Uh, you're responsible for like checking in with your commander every so often. We're going to uh, disarm you and move you to a different part of the country. And that's kind of a little bit more um, fraught because you uh, you still actually have the social capital embedded in that. It's just that theoretically they're no longer engaged in warfare. There is also an individual component for just like your average, um, your average kind of a foot soldier where it wasn't like, you know, you were retired with a pension or anything, but you got a little bit of money to help set yourself up as long as you got out of the area that you were working in, you had access to um, you know, various kinds of government uh, social workers. And uh, you, know, you were kind of expected to find uh, some other kind of employment. And it, I mean, it's, it's kind of questionable how well that actually works out as a strategy. There is one um, great uh, anecdote, not from this book. Um, I don't remember where I read this uh, story, but when uh, Black September... Uh, via the Palestinian, uh, the kind of armed wing of Hamas, um, responsible for the Munich massacre, uh, Munich Olympics massacre. Uh, when they were demobilized, um, their uh, their political leadership realized, well, these guys still have all of the uh, you know very particular set of skills, so it it's not like you can just be like go somewhere else and like you know, be a farmer or whatever, you kind of have to make them very interested in not, uh, not fighting anymore. So their brilliant strategy was to, uh, scour the, uh, the local, uh, the local neighborhoods for the, uh, the prettiest uh, young women they could find. Um, and they got them all married and, uh, had them kind of sit on their heels. It's like, you're basically under house arrest with your wife, uh, for a few months and, oh gosh, now you got a couple of kids on the way. And, you know, I think, uh, the, the life of a, uh, a, an armed gorilla is no longer, uh, the life for you. You got to focus on your family. Um, needless to say, you can't really do that for like a very large organization. Um, 
so I mean, these things are all sort of uh, by nature uh, temporary because people do have conflicts and they still, they still, you know, these things were started at one point. They can be started again. But that was sort of the um, the paramilitary side of it. And a lot of the commanders actually got, um, you know, borderline betrayed by the government at one point, and a lot of them were extradited for to the U.S. for uh, for drug trafficking as the state sort of consolidated its power and disposed of uh, embarrassing problems down the line. But I haven't read much about the um, the FARC uh, demobilization. Um, process uh, partially because it's still kind of an ongoing thing. Um, but my impression has been that it's been a similar pattern, like stop fighting, he- turn over your guns. Here's a little bit of money and, you know, a psychologist to deal with your uh, PTSD. Yeah. And then the U S sort of shifts, I think from military aid now in theory, it's shifting towards more, food aid and humanitarian aid and institutional support and it's like the bill clinton model for how to build up a country after it's been totally ruined or whatever by the cia and you know the farc in those areas they used to control is probably on the receiving end of all kinds of goodies from the united states and uh i think that's probably the the intention there is to bribe them (laughs) And make sure this problem doesn't occur again. Now, I mean, recently the U.S. I think has signed a very uh, important defense agreement with Colombia, and Colombia is effectively a non-NATO tier ally, and that it's a very close ally, military ally of the United States, and it probably receives all kinds of humanitarian financial aid to prop up these rural regions and make sure that they don't turn towards the FARC or something similar to the FARC again. But, you know, generally, I think the trend is that a lot of these guys gave up, like kind of what Adam was saying, and tried to move into the cities and live a normal life. And the same thing happened after the, after the end of the Spanish Civil War. A lot of former communists and, and Republicans who didn't get executed just resumed normal life in one of the cities. They didn't leave uh, the country. It just became, you know, we got to adapt to the normal. And uh, that's it. Yeah, and of course you have the the middle level guys are always the guys that you have to watch out for. They're the ones who do coups, and they're the ones who, when you have uh, agreements like this that are signed, they're the ones who realize, well, I'm doing a lot of the operational control as opposed to strategic control anyway. I know all these guys, and uh, I didn't agree to shit. So the th- the kind of third wave of uh, these paramilitaries that is far more kind of uh, focused on not so much counterinsurgency, but just being an independent armed power uh, that uh, engages in drug trafficking and extortion, just a, a standard kind of extra legal criminal organization. That's mostly your mid-level guys um, of these previously uh, kind of sponsored uh, paramilitary organizations that have realized that it's a lot more profitable if you go freelance as long as you're uh, willing to undertake the risks. Yeah, and to a large extent, throughout the 90s and, and maybe the very early 2000s, uh, I think that 
the majority of the criminal activity that began, we didn't, we didn't really touch as much on this, but is mostly former FARC guys. Like there, there's a whole new element to these rural regions that kind of takes over. And it's uh, before globalization really kicks in in Colombia. Um, it's just criminal elements, mostly uh, staffed or run by or linked to the FARC or the ENL, or one of these various uh, rural communitarian organizations. Uh, this is a common thing. It's a common thing with failing um, insurgencies, and it's also a common thing with successful ones. It, it's the same thing that Hezbollah, for example, really got into. Hezbollah really got into the drug trade, but Hezbollah is not a failing organization. In fact, it's, it's probably the most successful uh, sort of international guerrilla organization around, I would say. Uh, it's everything the FARC tried to be. Um, and on top of that, Hezbollah got into the illegal drug trade and got into just the general crime trade as a way of bolstering its income. But a lot of these FARC guys saw it, uh, maybe ideologically, as a way of impacting the system somehow and retaining that local support structure that they had built up over the years. Uh, but also... <laughs> A lot of them just wanted to make money at a certain point. They had put in their years as a revolutionary warfighter, and uh, it was met with failure. So they wanted to just make money and live comfortable or do something reckless. Um, and this kind of became a common theme in Latin America, and it's still a common theme in that a lot of the drug trade down there is linked. If it's not linked to the CIA or it's linked to you know one of the sort of establishment groups, it's very much linked to former left-wing revolutionaries. Don't go.